0: So going back to uh, when the, the pandemic first began, and we there for a while weren't able to meet at all because of, of that starting and being very unfamiliar and not knowing exactly the, the danger of it all, um, as was the case with many groups, we weren't able to have any services together for at least a, a number of weeks. Uh, you may recall, that's when I started sending out to you via text message, for those of you who are a part of that that group message, um, a daily verse of scripture. Um, just to kind of touch base with all of you guys and, and send you something spiritual to be thinking about. Um, just, just something that I could do when I couldn't teach and preach with you on a, on a regular basis. Um, as we started to meet back together... I mentioned to you in the text messages that as the month drew to a close, I would would bring those, um, those daily text messages to a close. And one person, uh, we'll call her Jean Ray, mentioned that she would like it if I kept those going. Um, and I'm very glad that she did. Now, maybe when your phone blows up with eight notifications, as I have to send it 180 characters at a time, and I've chosen a lengthier excerpt than perhaps is wise with text messaging. Maybe you're not as grateful during that moment. But many of you, including someone even today, have said something to me about appreciating those and them being, very, them being helpful to you. And I'm, I'm really glad for that. It's a very simple thing, but I'm glad that it is, is beneficial to you. Um, the scriptures for the last several weeks have been drawn throughout the entirety of the week from a particular book of the Bible. Uh, now next week we've got Philemon and I would basically just send you the whole book to try to drag a week's worth of, of reference or passages out of that short epistle. So we'll do Philemon and then I think the remainder of the week and the next week out of Hebrews, which is a lengthy book full of plenty of verses to send. Um, but this week it's been the book of Titus and I'd like to invite you to turn there. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Paul's letter to Titus. And we're gonna, you can go ahead and turn to the first chapter in the first verse. That's where we're going to start. This epistle, just like every other that you would read in the New Testament, is written within a particular historical context. That's just a way of saying it happens within the timeline of New Testament events. And it benefits us to take a moment and kind of get our bearings before we proceed into one of those books. And really, everything we need to know to take with us into this study, um, you can find in the, in the very first few verses. In verse 1, it says that this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. And according to verse 4, it is addressed to Titus, who Paul calls my true child in a common faith. Titus, to give you a little bit of his background, is the one by whom Paul sends to Corinth his sorrowful letter. Now, that sorrowful letter is either 1 Corinthians itself, because there's a lot of hard things to talk about in that letter, or it's another letter that has not survived. But in either case, this means that Titus is the one who delivered to a group like Corinth a letter that pointedly rebukes that congregation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Titus is involved in the work of collecting the money from various different Gentile congregations who want to help their Jewish brethren during their time of famine and need, which means Titus is someone who is participating in this sensitive issue, this very delicate work. He has a part in it. What all of that means together is Titus is somebody who is able and willing to step up even to difficult challenges. He is to Paul one of his beloved fellow workers. He is a capable brother. In verse 5 then we get the setting of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Just that simple phrase tells us a couple of things. First of all, Titus is in Crete. And that's where he receives this letter from Paul. And then secondly, by the by, Paul has been to Crete. That's why I left you there. Paul's been to Crete. Either he established the congregation there or he's just significantly worked with it, which is interesting. And I'll mention this to you because we just finished our study of the book of Acts a few weeks ago. Um, In the book of Acts, as we were studying through Paul's travels and he's spreading the gospel and all of that is recorded for us, you might recall that we never hear about him teaching the word of God in the city of Crete. Uh, what you'll find in a lot of commentaries is the the um, supposition that perhaps Paul planted the gospel in the city of Crete after the end of the book of Acts. If you'll remember from our study of the book of Acts, it ends on something of a cliffhanger, at least as far as Paul is concerned. Uh, the last two verses of the book tell us about the progress of the gospel. It is, it is spreading As it ever has. But for Paul, he lives in Rome. He's effectively under house arrest. Two whole years at his own expense. And he's welcoming all who come to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. With all boldness and without hindrance. So as far as the book of Acts story about the gospel goes. That's a great ending. As far as Paul, we don't really know. Something though has to happen to him. After those two years. So either he dies. Or he's charged with something else. Or he's set free. A lot of folks believe it's the latter of those two choices for a variety of reasons. Um, That after two years, he's set free from that imprisonment. And he goes on and spreads the gospel in other places, including perhaps Crete. Which, if that's the case, that means that this letter is one of Paul's last. Uh, Titus, and then 1st and 2nd Timothy, would be his, his last three epistles. Either way, as we said, Titus is someone who is capable of taking on challenging tasks of sowing the seed in fields that are difficult. And Crete is one such place. That's a tough place to work. Um, You read about their reputation in verses 12 and 13, where Paul says one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You may have a footnote in your Bible nearby that lets you know Paul's quoting one of their po- or a poet named Epimenides. He himself was from Crete. So that's what one of their own thinks. That's what Cretans say about Cretans, that they're lazy and dis- dishonest and gluttonous. And Paul says he's absolutely right. That testimony is true. There's one ancient writer named Polybius said the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. So if you think of some of our cities that are synonymous with dishonesty and greed, perhaps something like Washington, D.C. might come to your mind, for example. Um, I know there are parts of it that are beautiful and just fine. But of course, there is the legendary strip in Las Vegas and the nightlife there and the things that are uh, there that are not good. I'm not bagging on the whole city, though, Sherry. Um, and then what is it? Atlantic city? Is that the New Jersey, uh, component to, to Las Vegas, different places like that. We might think of those joints. That's where Titus has been sent. So wherever you might think would make a very difficult place to spread the message of the Holy God and to preach a meek and lowly Prince of peace. That's where Titus is doing God's work. And evidently he's the man for the job. So we have Titus taking up tough assignments previously. And now Paul tells him, I want you to keep pressing forward. Verse 13 goes on to say, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Your version may say severely that they may be sound in the faith. Now it's not the time to let up on the pedal. So across the few pages of this letter, what Paul wants Titus to do as he rebukes them to be sound in the faith is, is to, as verse 5 says, put the church there in order. And in the course of his instructions on how to do so, Paul uses a particular phrase several times, which is noteworthy because this is a short letter. It's three chapters. And yet this particular phrase recurs six times in just that small amount of text. So, in chapter 1 and verse 16, at the end of the verse, Paul says, They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In chapter 2 and verse 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In chapter 2 and verse 14, you might remember back when Brian was teaching a class on that book, Lifelong Zeal. This was a theme verse for that text. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then, and then, in chapter 3 and verse 1, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And two more for you. Chapter 3 and verse 8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So six times in three small chapters, Paul uses the phrase good works, talks about how important they are. That's why I want to talk about it with you today. Because I've been sending these verses to you all throughout this week. So they've been on my mind. Perhaps they're still a little bit on yours. I thought it'd be a good time to talk about them. Before we do, um, I want us to look at another passage right here in Titus that sounds like it's saying something sort of the opposite. Um, In chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. The first point I've got for you this morning that I just want to mention and then we can move on is that you and I are not saved by however many good works we may do. Um, Part of the reason we're not saved by our works has to do with what Paul says a few lines earlier in verse three. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not a very pretty picture. Um, It is hard to imagine the the Cretans, for one, would object to this picture, this characterization, given what some of them have said about themselves. But then also the fact that the Greeks actually invented a word, "cretizo," which meant to act like a Cretan. And that was basically uh, an idiom for saying someone was dishonest. So to call someone a Cretan or say you're acting like a Cretan is to say, you're a liar, you're lying. And what Paul says is that's not just true of the Cretans as everybody recognizes it is, even they do themselves. It's true of all of us. So that lack of integrity, the absence of a, of a, of a, of a moral or rather godliness compass, the, the malice, the spite, the hate, it's everywhere. So we can't be saved by our own works Because we have our our sinfulness to contend with. And we don't have it within our power to do anything about that. So verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. But when the goodness and loving kindness of who? Of God our Savior. So when God's goodness and God's loving kindness appeared. He saved us. It's an interesting way to construct the thought. When Paul says that God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, he's not talking about the arrival of two abstract concepts. I believe he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of God's goodness and God's loving kindness. He embodies the mercy of God. He displays it in the utmost there on the cross. He's motivated by it as well. He's God with us. Emmanuel. So when the loving kindness and the goodness of God appeared, verse five says that he saved us. But notice how he does it. You've got uh, one of those kind of familiar, not this, but this constructions that happened in, in scripture, uh, especially in the writings of Paul. So notice that, that the not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So you and I are sinful. Our works have enslaved us to sin. They've disqualified us from salvation. And the only way that you and I can be saved is if God chooses to show us mercy and save us. Since you and I can't save ourselves. And that's another phrase that recurs in this letter. That God is our Savior. In chapter 1 and verse 3, I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. At the end of chapter 2 and verse 10, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In verse 13 of chapter 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then chapter 3 and verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Small book, that keeps coming up. We needed a Savior. So it's certainly not by our works. It's by his mercy. And then back in chapter 3 verse 5. Notice how the verse continues. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there's two aspects. To our salvation. On the one hand it's by the washing of regeneration. That's not a reference to baptism. I don't know what it is. It regenerates. It gives new life. Sometimes the the Bible pictures baptism as a, a new birth, and sometimes it's a resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, we're not saved by our own works. We're saved in God's mercy by this washing of regeneration. And the other thing he says is that it's also the time when God's spirit renews our spirit as well. I take a moment with this, and you may have noticed that from time to time in Lessons on Salvation, I do so. Um, because there are, are a lot of folks who think that since the Bible says we are not saved by works, and I agree, we are not. And since the Bible says we are saved by God's mercy and grace, and I agree, yes we are, that that means baptism has nothing to do with the conversion process since baptism is just simply one of those good works. And good works can't save us, therefore baptism can't save us. What I want us to see is that's the exact opposite way to take what Paul says in this passage compared to what he actually says. Paul's quite emphatic. When when he denies that our works have anything to do with our salvation, we are not saved by our works, but he just as emphatically says we are saved by the washing of regeneration, which means that baptism is God's mercy. It is God's washing. It doesn't have anything to do with with. You just doing something so great and, and you getting in that special, special water. It isn't anything like that. It is God's mercy and God's washing. And the only reason that has any power whatsoever different than the, the bath you may have taken uh, yesterday is the renewal that God has given us of his spirit. He makes that a washing of regeneration as opposed to just the washing. And all of this is by God's goodness And God's loving kindness. So what Paul says in this passage is we are not saved by our good works. We are saved according to God's mercy. And it's through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Another word I want us to look at. God's mercy is what we're saved by. What is it that we're saved for? What's the purpose of our salvation? So the verses we were just looking at are verses 3 through 5. They come in the middle of a pretty lengthy paragraph. Um, It's part of why I asked Wendell when he said, do you have a scripture reading for me? I said, yes, sir. And asked him to read backing up into chapter two and into chapter three to get more of that that discussion. Uh, I want us to look at some of the verses that come before and then look at some that, that come after. And I want us to notice in this passage, which clearly teaches we're not saved by our works. That Paul says we are, however, saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do them. So back in chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You'll notice there in verse 11, Paul uses the same idea of something appearing. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, this time he uses the word grace. How does grace appear? I would say just like his goodness and loving kindness did in the person of Jesus. But you notice this passage, just as much as it begins with God's grace, it ends with with our good works. At the end of verse 14, he has purified for himself a people for his own possession. Who did the purifying? He did. He did. But to what end? To have a people of his own who are zealous for good works. That is just the biblical pattern that service to him and service to others always begins with God's love and grace. So in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And he goes on to mention two ways in which you can do that, through your words and through your service. In Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 7, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 11, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And again, starts with God's grace and it leads to the work of ministry. In Romans 12 and verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he even lists things like serving and teaching and encouraging and generosity. So the point is the good works we all do that we all do begin with God's grace. So it is as it was there in the book of Titus. Paul talks about good works six times, but they're always generated first by God taking the initiative to save us by his goodness, mercy, and loving kindness. And that's what he says back there in chapter uh, chapter 2 and verse 14 of Titus. We're saved from lawless deeds and saved for Good works. You notice, I'm sure in verse 14, Paul doesn't simply say, I want you to do good works. He says, I want you to be zealous for good works. He says, I want you to live for doing good works in Jesus name. Chapter three and verse one. Paul says, remind them, the brethren there. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I know this comes up a few times lately in in sermons and it came up in this morning's class, but I know a lot of you are on some kind of social media account because you want to see friends, you want to see pictures of kids and different things like that. A lot of you have the good sense not to fiddle with any of that. But some of you, that's how you keep in touch with people you don't get to live by. You get to see how they're doing. But along with that, good has come a great deal of bad. If you had to to score your Facebook friends, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, against this text, how would they do? And more importantly, if you had to score yourself, your posts, your shares, your forwards, your comments, etc. Submissive to rulers and authorities, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show, this is a big one, perfect courtesy toward all people. It is easy to be a bit of a punk online sometimes, especially when the other person is too very easy to somehow leave behind perfect courtesy for a witty retort. The reason he says remind them to live this way towards others is because we ourselves, continuing with the text here, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy. And how's this one sound? Hated by others and hating one another. There is so much anger out there. It's sickening and shocking. And yet still somehow tempting to get into the midst of it. When this is how we're supposed to be. Because that's who we used to be. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. And not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's that new beginning we talked about um, two weeks ago. So Paul says, I want you to be ready for every good work. Because we once spent our lives devoted to evil works. But Christ has now saved us. And He saved us to be a people for His own possession who now are devoted, zealous, and ready for every good work. And then when, when Paul finishes this thought about our salvation by God's mercy, I want you to notice how he concludes the thought in verse 7. So that being just or so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, heirs of the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So that's something of how Paul concludes that thought in that particular paragraph. I think I sent you verses from that section on Wednesday and Thursday, if not Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. But then I know that the way that this letter ends is what I sent you on on Friday. And how do, how do you think this letter is going to end after saying those things in verse 14? And let our people learn to devote themselves to good words. Paul, you already said that saying it again. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I can tell you from personal experience, there is nothing more miserable than an unfruitful faith. A faith not devoted to any kind of good works. As Paul makes it pretty clear, and we want to be really clear about it too. You and I are not going to be saved no matter how many good works that we do. But we are saved for good works which are to be motivated by the mercy and love that's been shown to us that did save us, the price that's been paid so that we could be saved. Now, there are certain specific responsibilities that God has given to us as a local church, certain specific works God has given us to do collectively. And honestly, you can go through the entirety of the New Testament, and there's really only a a few of those as you comb through those pages. We assemble together, we worship together, we evangelize, we, we edify each other, we take care of our needy members. And some of the good works that we do are, are going to occur in that setting. But most of our lives as Christians has lived outside of these walls. So most of what we do, we do in the context of, of personal daily commitment to God. And it's in that kind of broader context, Paul's talking about good works. If you scan through the letter in chapter two, verses four through seven, he talks about how to live in the home as husbands and wives and servants. In chapter three, verse one, he talks about how to live as a citizen in a country, as we just read a moment ago. In chapter three, verse two, he talks about how to be a good member of your community, treating people with that perfect um, gentleness and, and patience. The pervasive point is that in every part of your life, because you've been saved by God's grace, you are regenerated. You're a new person who lives out that new reality by sharing with others the goodness that God has shared with you. And since God did such a good work by saving you... You are in turn devoted and zealous and ready, chomping at the bit to do good works for others. What all of this means is that when someone takes the step to become a Christian, which I believe everyone here has. But it means when you take that step to become a Christian, when you're baptized into Christ, you're not done. Sometimes it, it, it's, it feels like it's treated that way, either by the, the person who became a Christian or maybe the folks that were studying with them. They finally got them to the point where they said, I want to be baptized. I believe Jesus Christ is God's son. And you get them baptized. and You try to pay attention. You make sure you want to see them at services but maybe the studies together with that young Christian now stop. That baptism wasn't the last step. It was effectively the first one. So if you're studying with someone, and maybe you think they're getting to the point where they're ready to become a Christian, work with them to make sure they're ready to do what Paul says in this passage, as they're growing in their faith to be a person who's zealous... To, to live out their faith for Jesus. Not just become a Christian, but serve Him and serve others in the heading towards a, a lifetime of good works devoted to God. Um, if you became a Christian and kind of took your foot off the pedal, I've I become a Christian now, I had my sins washed away, I'm gonna make sure that I'm living my life as a good person, I'm gonna get to worship services frequently. May I encourage you to look inward and and think about what it is that you could be doing to serve Christ and serve others? Think about how you can grow in service to God and set about growing in your faith and growing in your readiness to serve. As Paul points out, God has done the greatest work already, He sent the embodiment of. Of grace and loving kindness in Jesus Christ, his Son, who saved us from our sins, did something we can't fathom a way to do. May we, in awe of what's been done for us, in awe of the grace that has been poured out on us, Titus 3 6, may we do good works for him gladly. May God help us to be active. Motivated by all that he has done for us to do good deeds for him, and if by chance you have um, been living as a Christian in something of a lackadaisical way and it's time to to repent of that and to do better and to be motivated to serve, um, we would love to help you with that. That's certainly something that you can pray to God about one on one, but if you'd like the encouragement of your brethren. Um, some mutual accountability, maybe even someone to work with. I, I know just about everybody here would love to be of aid in that way. Um, if it happens to be that your your life is caught up in some kind of sin right now, that's keeping you from the, the mercy that God would show you, that's throwing you back into the sins he saved you from, and is certainly keeping you from doing any good works in his name. Then please by all means repent of those sins. And if we can pray for you this morning and help you do that, won't you let us know while we stand in sin?